I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is the Turn on the Jets podcast. I don't have to convince any one of those eight defensive coaches how effed up I am. These players, they want to defend MetLife Stadium for you guys. Here's your host, Joe Caparoso. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Turn on the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Joe Caparoso, owner of TurnOnTheJets.com. Today, this is going to be part one of a two-part episode breaking down the New York Jets 2020 schedule, which was just released. We'll also hit on a couple other tidbits of recent news, including the team signing Frank Gore. I'm going to be joined by Scott Mason, who hosts our daily podcast on the Play Like a Jet feed. Uh, If you have not yet, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Also, if you have not yet, check out our subscription podcast available at turnonthejets.podbean.com, hosted by myself and Connor Rogers. Uh, We most recently did about an hour and a half of NFL uh, draft grades for the Jets. Uh, Connor and I are going to record another episode this weekend with some leftover draft nuggets that Connor got. We'll talk a little schedule, a little Frank Gore, and also what our expectations are in terms of what will actually happen with the 2020 NFL season. Uh, from some different people we talked to. So that's turnonthejets.podbean.com uh, if you haven't subscribed there yet. $9.99 for a one-year subscription. We already have, I think, 20 episodes in the feed, so uh, good value there. We'll continue to crank them out. So the New York Jets and the rest of the NFL announced their 2020 schedule this year. Uh, I'm sorry, tonight for this year. Obviously, with the situation, it remains to be seen if these games will go on as scheduled, but... Uh, There are contingency plans in place, apparently, that could move these back a few weeks. Uh, We'll see what happens. It's hard to say. You know, we're recording this in early May. Uh, All these games are scheduled from September through late December, so it's kind of impossible to see what the status quo will be at that point. But as it stands now, the New York Jets will open up at Buffalo. They will then come home to play the 49ers on the road for the Colts in Week 3, home versus Denver in one of their two primetime games in Thursday Night Football, Home versus Arizona in Week 5 at the Chargers across the country in L.A. Home versus Buffalo at Kansas City versus New England on Monday Night Football. Then at Miami, a bye week, home against Miami for the rare playing the same team two games in a row. I can't remember if that's ever happened before. Uh, Then home against the Raiders and then a fairly difficult finish at Seattle, at Los Angeles Rams, home for the Browns, and at the Patriots. So that is your Jets schedule. Uh, certainly on paper, a more difficult one than last year. Uh, I believe, as it stands now, they're only favored in one game. Their Vegas over-under is at 6.5. Um, Scott, what's your initial reaction to seeing the order of how these games are laid out? It's interesting, Joe, because you see it on paper in terms of who they're actually playing, and you say, oh, this is a tough schedule. And then you see the sequence, and it really kind of puts it into perspective for you because as we're going to go through... They have a really tough stretch at the beginning, but I think the difference between this year and last year is 
Joe, we talked about how the Jets had that really tough stretch at the beginning of the schedule, but if they could just get through it and tread water, they would be okay, and they would have an easy stretch toward the end of the season. I suppose you could say that easy stretch is the back-to-back against Miami and then the Raiders, but man, it is a lot tougher this year than last year on the back end of that schedule. So the Jets are not going to be able to get away with a lot of what they got away with last year in the second half. It's going to be a much, much harder task for them to pull off to even get back to seven and nine, which is what they were last year. Yeah. Remember this year, there will actually be an additional playoff team in each conference. So uh, I don't know what it's going to take to be the seven seed, whether that's going to be an eight and eight or nine and seven situation. I think last year the Rams would have been the seven seed at nine and seven, and the Steelers would have been the seven seed in the AFC at eight and eight. But I think, like you said, last year's schedule was kind of interesting with how it broke out, where the first half was, you know, brutal on paper, and they had this soft stretch uh, to close the year, which they took advantage of. That's how their season really played out. They went one and seven in their first eight and six and two. Uh, in their last eight, although the six and two obviously a bit misleading because the Bills were resting their starters in that week 17 game and they got to play Pittsburgh's third string quarterback. Doesn't matter, all water under the bridge now. But looking forward to um, this year, and it's a lot like last year with how things start out. Um, you know, we remember last year, week one, it was you really have to kind of beat Buffalo. Uh, because at that time, everyone was really high on Cleveland as a serious contender. And then you had New England in week three uh, and Philly in week four. And it was like, man, you don't want to be 0-1 going into those three games. And this year is kind of similar, except the Jets aren't getting Buffalo at home. They're going to have to go to Buffalo, where Sam Darnold is 2-0 and as a starter. Uh, I know last year was mostly against Mac Barkley, uh, but a couple of years ago, he did have a nice win there against Buffalo. Buffalo is you know, definitely, I think, going to be you know, a preseason darling. I think a lot of people will pick them to win the AFC East to just show they're picking someone, not New England. I am still going to pick New England. I also think Buffalo has like five primetime games or something this year at the first scroll through. Made the big offseason addition with Stephon Diggs. You can make the argument they have the best overall roster in the AFC East uh, with the big difference between them and New England being that New England has Bill Belichick and that Josh Allen is still a wild card uh, when he's throwing the football. Uh, Definitely been better than I expected through a couple of years, but still very erratic and probably something that holds back the rest of a a really talented, well-rounded roster and a great defense and a great defensive front. So a a big test for Darnold and that offensive line right out of the gate and a game that, again, you kind of have to win because then you're coming back home to play the NFC champion San Francisco 49ers who have the best defensive front in the NFL, the best running attack in the NFL and one of the best coaches in the NFL, and Kyle Shanahan. Week three, um, you know, a bit of a step back. You get the Colts on the road, a team who made the playoffs two years ago, won a playoff game, uh, added Phillip Rivers to be their new quarterback this year. Uh, Frank Wright's been impressive as a head coach there. It'll be interesting to see how much Rivers has in the tank uh, at that point. I mean, still early in the year. And then week four, one of your two primetime games against the Denver Broncos at home on Thursday night. Denver, I'm guessing, is going to be a popular wild card pick um, because Drew Locke looked pretty good last year, and they go out and they have the big offseason where they get Jerry Judy and K.J. Hamler to kind of round out Cortland Sutton and the rest of the weapons that they have. They also added Melvin Gordon. So looking at those first four games at Buffalo, home for San Francisco, at Colts, home for Denver on Thursday night, 
what are your thoughts on that first quarter of the year and how it compares to kind of what our thinking was at this time last year with Gase and Darnold? Man, Joe, I'll tell you, it really doesn't look good on paper, at least. You've got the Bills on the road, and like you said, the Bills have, at least on paper, the best overall roster in the division. So you got to figure they're going to be significantly favored in this one. If the Jets have any advantage, it's Donald over Allen. But again, I know Donald is 2-0 in the matchups that he's had in Buffalo. It's just, man, they improved a lot, and they already had a much better roster than the Jets. So that could be a real rough game for them. And then from there, they've got the 49ers coming in. And as you said, the 49ers have one of the best coaches. They have one of the best overall rosters. That front seven, even with losing Buckner and replacing him with Kinlaw, is still deadly. You have to figure the Jets are going to be significant underdogs in their own building. And then after that, the Colts, I know you're talking about Phillip Rivers, but again, the Colts are a team with a really, really good roster. The big problem last year was the inconsistency of quarterback. If Andrew Luck had been the QB, they probably would have been runaway favorites to win that division. Not that Rivers is necessarily what Luck was because Rivers kind of at the end of his career here, but I think he has enough left that with that system and with Frank Reich and with the players that he's got around him, they should be able to be a really good team this year, and they're at home in the Dome. Those first three games are going to be really tough. And then you were talking to me about this before we started recording, but the Broncos should be very much improved. They added two really strong pieces in the passing game for Drew Locke in Jerry Judy and K.J. Hamler, not to mention they already had Sutton and they've got Noah Fant. So they're really starting to cook and have a nice young nucleus there in the passing game. The question, of course, is going to be Drew Locke. He looked good in limited duty last year. What's he going to do now in his first full season? So that stretch is going to be really tough. I think that there's a very strong chance they lose those first three. I think the 49ers will come in here and win, and the two road games are going to be really difficult. And then from there, and we'll talk about week five in a second, but I think maybe the Jets split the next two games that are at home because you've got Denver, and then after that, you've got a matchup that is probably right on par with the Denver matchup, and I'm going to let you talk about that in a second. So I think there's a decent possibility they start off somewhere in that 0-3, 1-4 range, and if that happens, it's going to be a lot harder to recover than last year because, like you said, there was that soft back half of the schedule that they took advantage of. I don't know that there's that same soft back half this year, Again, it's all on paper because, Joe, sometimes teams turn out to be a lot better in reality than they are on paper. But sometimes the team is what it is on paper, and that's what we're looking at right now because we obviously won't know for sure until these games actually get played. So just looking at it on paper, it doesn't look great the first few weeks. Yeah, look, it's a tough start on paper. I don't think there's any reason to, you know, act otherwise. Buffalo was a playoff team last year. The Niners won the NFC. Uh, the Colts have what is generally considered a really impressive infrastructure and are clearly clearly view themselves as a win-now team with Rivers uh, being signed this offseason. And then Denver, I think, has a scary offense on paper. So after those four games, the Jets stay at home. They get the Cardinals, a team that uh, was not very good last year. 
but did make some strides on offense with Cliff Kingsbury, who nearly was the Jets' head coach. It'll be year two for Kyler Murray, who was impressive as a rookie. And, of course, they went and got DeAndre Hopkins. So that offense should be uh, pretty damn good this year. Uh, we know they drafted Isaiah Simmons, so maybe they were a little better on, on defense. Uh, a, a game that, on paper, is one of the Jets' easier quote-unquote games on paper. It'll be interesting to see if Murray and the Cardinals take a year two jump, though. Then you got to fly across the country to play the Chargers. I'm assuming the Chargers are going to end up starting Tyrod Taylor for most of this year over Herbert. I don't know if he's going to be a guy who starts in year one. The rest of that roster is pretty good. I mean, that was a team who was in the division around of the playoffs again two years ago. Obviously, really doesn't have much of a home field advantage. But if healthy, uh, a lot of talented players on both sides of the football. I'll get Derwin James back on defense. We know they have you know Keenan, Keenan Allen and Mike Williams on offense. Uh, they're going to go with Austin Eckler at running back. Uh, tough to fly across the country and play there. Then the Jets come back. They get Buffalo at home. So both of their Buffalo games done by week seven. Uh, and then we enter uh, the first oh shit game on the schedule where you get at Kansas City in week <laughs> eight. You know, a game that as of today, the Jets are probably 13 or 14 point underdogs in. Obviously, the Chiefs are the defending champs. The last time the Jets played Narrowhead, Ryan Fitzpatrick threw 26,000 interceptions. Uh, but that's all the way to week eight. And I've seen a couple people, you know, start. You know, they sort of use week seven as sort of the cutoff where the Jets need to be, you know, four and three through these first seven if they're going to have any chance to be competitive this year. Because after Kansas City, they get New England uh, on Monday night at home, uh, but it's still New England. Uh, so that's a tough back to back game. And really, when you factor in Buffalo, it's three straight games against playoff teams from last year. So looking just at the next four home for Arizona, at the Chargers, home for Buffalo. At Kansas City, uh, how do you feel about those four and getting both Buffalo games out of the way so early? It's interesting, Joe, because like I said, I think the two home games back to back with Denver and Arizona, you figure they probably win one of them. If they can get both, great. Arizona is a winnable game, but I also think that it's going to be tough because Arizona made a lot of really nice improvements in the off season. They went out and they got Isaiah Simmons in the draft, who will be a terrific defensive piece, and they really needed that because that defense has been bad. But also on offense, they went out and they got DeAndre Hopkins, who's one of the best wide receivers in the league. And we know that the Jets have trouble with cornerback. Pierre Desir, on paper at least, is their best corner. He didn't have a very good year last year. He's coming off of an injury. So how's he going to do against Hopkins? I know he's had his battles with him, and he's actually done okay at times, but we don't know – if the Jets are going to be getting last year's Pierre Desir or the guy from the year before who played a little bit better. So that's one that they could get, but it's also one that they might end up faltering in just because of the improvements Arizona made. And then from there, you know, you got the game at home against the Bills. That's a game that should be winnable. I know that (laughs) it's funny. Everybody will say that the Jets – should be able to be very competitive with the Bills in both games, and I think that's true. But ultimately, how well does that Jets roster stack up? I think a lot of it's going to have to do with how Greg Williams can dial up some stuff to bother Josh Allen, and then if Sam Darnold can step up. The Kansas City game, you might as well just mark that off as a loss, more or less, I think. So this is an interesting stretch. Four and three, I don't see happening up to <laughs> up to week eight. But I do think that they have a chance to maybe steal a couple of games and get to, you know, two or three wins early. If they can do that, then 
I suppose it's the equivalent of treading water, and you would hope that as the schedule gets a little more forgiving later, mostly with the two Dolphins games and the Raider game that we're going to talk about, that if they can hang in there long enough to get to that within a reasonable record, that's where the season could turn. So it's really interesting, Joe, because I think two of the pivotal games early on are going to be those two home games back-to-back against Arizona and Denver. Both teams improved, but at home, it's not like it's out of the realm of possibility. So if they could steal both of those games especially, then we might be looking at a better season than some of us anticipate. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Every year of these past nine years, the Jets have missed the playoffs. They haven't had a winning record in their division. Uh, So you have to have a winning record in your division, in my mind, if you're going to be a competitive team for a playoff spot. They have to get to 4-2, which is going to mean handling business when you have your home games against Buffalo and uh, finding a way to sweep one of those three teams, which is just something they really haven't been able to do with any type of consistency uh, over these past 10 years. And, you know, when you look through, you know, this early slate of games, uh, how are they going to play on the road? You know, I think an under appreciated Adam Gase stat is that he's five and 19 on the road in the past three years. So mm-hmm. the ceiling for the jets is seven and nine. If he's going to keep going two and six on the road every single year. So can they get a win in Buffalo? Can they get a win in Indy? Uh, can they get a win uh, when they fly and play the chargers? Can they at least get to three and five on the road this year? So if they're six and two at home, they're over 500. If you're going to go two and six or worse on the road every year, which Gase has done each of the past three years, you're really you're putting a lot on your team to win every single home game, uh, especially when you got to play a team like the Pats at home and a team like the Niners at home, um, which are going to be challenges. So how the Jets play on the road early in the season, and we'll find out you know right out of the gate uh, with Buffalo and how they handle having to travel to the West Coast, something they really avoided last year with the least amount of miles traveled, I think, of any team in the NFL, I think are going to be telling signs overall for how this season's going to break. And I think most Jet fans are kind of accurately saying, look, you know, the floor for this team is probably like 5-11-ish, and 11-ish, where the ceiling could be 9-7 and seven or 10-6. and six. And if you're going to be 9-7 and seven or 10-6, and six, You've got to win some of these road games. You've got to win at Buffalo. You've got to win when you fly across the country and play San Diego. And then you've got to handle your business at home. There's no you know, letdown to the Cardinals, uh, which wouldn't even be a letdown on the scale of what losing to Jacksonville and Cincinnati and Miami was last year. But you've got to win that game. And you've got to, uh, you've got to beat Buffalo when you're at home. You can't set yourself up to be 3-3 three and three or worse in the division again. And the only way they're going to avoid that is is by handling business in these early games, particularly against uh, particularly against Buffalo. We'll get to the back half of the schedule on part two of this when we talk about uh, sort of the weird staggering of their Miami games and then yet again closing the season with the Patriots. Uh, but, but before we wrap on this feed and record the rest for part two on your feed, I uh, want to briefly talk about uh, an addition the Jets made to their roster this past week. 
it was almost it was an addition that some of us were kind of joking <laughs> around about late in the season. And lo and behold, they did actually go sign Frank Gore, who's 37 years old, to a one-year contract. Uh, last year was with the Buffalo Bills. Frank Gore, very easy guy to root for, will be a Hall of Famer, uh, lauded for his uh, leadership, uh, for his the way he works, and that's a testament to how he's been able to play for so long in the NFL. He's been playing literally for an eternity. Uh, apparently came down to the Jets and Raiders on one-year deals. He goes with the Jets. He's familiar with Adam Gase. He has a lot of positive things to say about Adam Gase. I, I'm not going to sit here and disparage Frank Gore. Frank Gore is a Hall of Famer, and he's going to be a fun guy to root for. I also think we got a reality check that Frank Gore kind of stunk for the Bills last year, and there's a reason he was a free agent all the way through until after the draft. And based on Adam Gase's history and based on some – even what we saw with Buffalo last year when they – you know, they were just giving Gore these carries and not giving Devin Singletary enough action. I, week one just jumps out to me. Singletary had four carries for 70 yards. Gore, I think, had like 11 for 20 yards. And then even in their playoff game, I think Gore had like nine carries for 22 yards. So my my concern here is that Adam Gase isn't crazy about Le'Veon Bell. I don't think he has any idea how to use him. And I'm already getting concerned that I'm going to see a week one box score of Le'Veon Bell, 12 carries, 48 yards, Frank Gore, 11 carries, 31 yards, over and over and over again, and maybe that won't be the case. And maybe Gore is literally just going to be a third-string running back who gets five carries a game. I don't know. I don't trust Gase with his personnel usage, and it's just – I don't, the hit, like coaches always bring their guys. You know, Last year, Josh Bellamy was Adam Gase's guy, and the Jets overpaid him to be a special teamer and backup receiver. He got hurt, and now he was out all of last year. He's out all of this year. Um, and David Fales is an Adam Gase guy, so they bra- drag him over, and now he's poised to be the backup quarterback. Now, Gore, Gore is Gore. He's going to be a Hall of Fame running back, but Gore looked pretty washed last year, and understandably so. He's a 37-year-old running back. I don't know. If, if I was the Jets... I wouldn't have mind flipping a late round pick for Matt Breida like the Dolphins did and adding a little speed to the offense, not going with a you know a guy who's going to just get two yards of carry up the middle. That's just my opinion. I, I know it, it's just, it's not popular to not love every single move that the Jets make, but it, this is kind of like, yeah, this is kind of predictable and probably is just going to make life harder on Le'Veon Bell. What, what were your thoughts on the move? It's funny because the news broke just as I was recording with Manish. So we were in the middle of talking about the playoff mandate article that he had written. He said, you know what? We should probably talk about this another time because breaking news, the Jets signed Frank Gore. And you could sort of hear my reaction on the podcast where I just said, really, I just don't understand this. And I was trying to make sense of it as he was telling me about it. I think that in some ways, Frank Gore got a little bit of a bad rap for his performance last year only because He was used very situationally, so a lot of his numbers aren't going to look great. And I do think that he fits the system, but I honestly don't care that he fits the system because he really doesn't have that much left in the tank, and he's not what they need. They need a speed back, somebody that can really accelerate. It's the one kind of back they just don't have right now. And I've heard it suggested that maybe the Jets did this because P. Ryan's a rookie and they may not have regular camp and they need somebody to help bring him along. If that's the case, they probably should ask Gore to be a running back coach. I just feel like if they were going to add a third back, which I would have been all for, it should have been somebody 
that brought that element of speed that I thought they needed and should have gone after in the draft, which is why I really like the idea of getting somebody like Eno Benjamin or even Anthony McFarlane Jr. So it's just a perplexing move. It's in the at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because Joe, we're talking about a contract for one year that's not going to pay that much. So whatever. But I think when you look at what they really needed, and if you look at the fact that this can't really send a positive message to Le'Veon Bell, and I'm not sitting here saying, oh, this is Adam Gates telling Le'Veon Bell that he stinks. But if you're Le'Veon Bell, especially considering everything that went down with Gates and Bell, and I know that apparently they sat down and hashed it out, but if you're Bell in the back of your mind, that's never going away. You know that he didn't want you, and you know how he used you last year, and you know the way that he answered that question at the press conference afterwards. So that's always going to be in your head, and then they go out and get another running back to take some carries away from you, and even from the youngster, and it just seems like a bizarre move. Like I said, not the end of the world, but doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it is kind of is what it is. I, I, we'll find out kind of early in the year what that workload split looks like. But it was just funny because you get the interview from Gay saying they want to lighten Bell's load, and then the next day they sign Gore, and it just kind of feels like a timeshare, at least early in the year. So I don't know. We'll see how it shakes out, you know. I wouldn't mind seeing more P. Ryan and you know getting him up to speed, but I understand he's a rookie, so uh, we'll see how uh, we'll see how it shakes out. So we're gonna hop over to go through the back half of the Jet schedule on the Play Like a Jet feed. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed and check out the rest of that episode over there. We'll be back on this feed with another episode next week, and we will also have a new episode on the Badlands feed at turnthejets.podbean.com over the weekend. And make sure you stick around now for Joe Bellick's interview with Matt Waldman. Uh, to talk about some of the Jets' mid-round draft picks. Really interesting, uh, in-depth discussion about the thinking behind them and how some of these guys project to the next level. We're going to run that interview right now. Hey, Jets fans. I'm Joe Bellick, writer for TurnOnTheJets.com. With us today is highly respected analyst Matt Waldman, senior staff writer for FootballGuys.com and creator of one of, if not the best, publications out there, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Hi, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Joe. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Matt. I'm excited to talk some football, touch on Denzel Mims, and get your thoughts on the Michael Pirine. I'm doing a deep dive on Pirine for TOJ, and I'm hoping to gain a little more insight into him as a player and how he fits the Jets. And I know you're the perfect person to ask. Prior to the draft, the Jets were lacking depth at running back, and unfortunately, many of us don't believe Bell will be back for 2021. So we all suspect that they would draft a running back at some point. The Jets run a predominantly zone-based system. How do you see Pirine fitting in? Oh, I think he's going to fit in just fine there. He's a He's the type of back that I think a lot of teams are going to value higher than maybe fans will at first because he does everything pretty well. He, he's a patient zone runner. Um, he has good balance. He's the type of player that's going to be able to you know, work towards the line of scrimmage, maintain his track towards, um, you know, towards the blocks that he's supposed to use to set up any type of cutback or bounce out. Or as the block develops, just cram it in there because generally with his own blocking scheme, you have those three options, a, a cutback, a cram, or a bounce. And he's adept at being able to do that. He has enough burst that he's going to be able to get through crease as well once he sets them up and varies his footwork. He has enough balance that you know he's going to be able to work through any type of contact that you know a defender reaching for him or trying to grab him and still be able to maintain his track downhill. And he can push for extra yards. He's definitely a strong enough guy 
to do that. So when you think from the standpoint of just running the football, he's a a fairly refined player for the zone scheme. Um, he's not a special athlete, but he's certainly athletic enough um, to be able to contribute for an NFL offense. Thanks for the input, Matt. But I still have some questions in regard to his ability in stretch runs. Adam Gase and Dow Loggins both had success utilizing outside zone in their careers. Loggins with Jordan Howard in 2016 and 2017, and Gase with JHI in 2016. The Jets also brought an offensive line coach, Frank Pollock, in 2019, who's an expert in outside zone. Yet, because of a weak offensive line, you know, amongst other things, they deployed stretch runs less than the league average, about 18% of the time last season. This offseason, they acquired more athletic linemen like George Fant and Mekhi Becton, who's very familiar with both inside and outside zone concepts from his time spent at Louisville. And personally, I expect them to increase the usage of outside zone. However, some have suggested Bell isn't a good fit. Do you agree? And how does P. Ryan compare to Bell? And is this where his ability to bounce, as you described, from inside out, best utilized? When you look at P. Ryan, P. Ryan can be competent as an inside or outside zone runner. I think he'd be better as an inside zone player just because he doesn't have quite the burst to, to be you know, a top-notch outside zone runner. But he's certainly going to be competent enough to do the gig. And I mean, I would say you look at his, his speed and burst, and I would say you know, you've got a guy like Bilal Powell playing for the Jets for a while who was a, a very competent runner um, who may not have had you know, top, top speed but certainly could get into the secondary. And I think P. Ryan's kind of that way. And then when you talk about Bell, I think a lot of people look at Bell and they they characterize him in a way where he becomes a caricature of his own game. Hmm. And I, what happens is that people see him playing that kind of peekaboo style where he can wait till the very last moment and kind of you know, force a defender to play games with a defender, you know, where he's trying to come off a block on one side of the the block with leverage and then try and then Bell will work deeper inside to a point where he forces the defender to abandon his position and then he'll bounce it outside or in um, wherever that that defender wasn't. And people will see that and they say, well, he's not going to be disciplined because he's going to dance too much running an outside zone system. Well, you know, I've watched... Le'Veon Bell since he was at Michigan State and Le'Veon Bell has no problem running outside zone in fact you know he has the burst to do it he has the footwork he understands how to manipulate blocks just because he has an advanced understanding and and advanced and unbelievable quickness to be able to do things that most backs can't doesn't mean that he has flaws with decision making it just means that he's extraordinarily good at being able to do things that other backs can't. I mean, his his three cone time at the combine and his and a short you know the short area change of direction was on the same tier of guys like Ahmad Bradshaw and Javid Best. And if you remember those two scat backs, and Javid Best was a you know an Olympic caliber sprinter. And when you think about the Le'Veon Bell was doing that at 230 pounds before he lost the weight at Pittsburgh, um, you know, that tells you how special his footwork and quickness really is. And so, you know, when you ask him to run outside zone, he's going to be able to do that just fine. It's just, you know, will he sometimes take chances that he shouldn't? Sure, but that's no different than other top backs like Barry Sanders or Jamal Charles, um, who used to take chances maybe occasionally that maybe they shouldn't have, but they know their limits 
more than most backs. And if they occasionally fail, they don't do it chronically. So we're not talking about like a C.J. Spiller type of player who had unbelievable athletic ability but took too many chances and didn't really understand his play schemes. And that's why he only had one strong season in the NFL, and it wasn't in a zone scheme. You know, Matt, in early February, I wrote an article for TOJ where I described the importance of bringing in a complimentary back. Do you think P. Ryan can fit that role? Do you think he's a good compliment to Bell? A compliment to Bell in the sense that you get a guy who, if Bell gets hurt or he or he needs a breather, you can bring P. Ryan in and he can do the job. I mean, he's a decent blocker who's going to get better. He's a he's a he's a very good receiver for a college prospect. Um, he's going to come and he's going to be able to make plays for you both on and off script. And, and again, he can run for power. He can get outside. All those things are good. To me, P. Ryan, the way I would describe P. Ryan in a nutshell is that he's the type of back that NFL coaches love because he may not necessarily be a starter, but he'll be a bargain in the mid-rounds who can start for you for extended games if needed and with a good line around him can produce, um, but he's not the guy that you're necessarily looking for to be the year-in, year-out starter. So don't be surprised if five years from now, P. Ryan's with a different team on a second contract, and then eight years from now, he's on a third team on a third contract, and he's the number two back. And he's still getting in on games, and he's still playing. And kind of like, a, kind of like you know, Bilal Powell was for the Jets for all these years. Like, kind of that second back who can come in, and for a few games, he can actually be the man if you need him to. But otherwise... You know, the, there some teams may look at him and say, "We want to find somebody with more speed. We find a, someone who's a little more electric. We want to find someone who runs with a little bit more pop or thump and can really carry the load for us." But they'll still love P. Ryan for what he does. They just don't see him as that next Le'Veon Bell, that next Ezekiel Elliott, you know, the next J.K. Dobbins or Jonathan Taylor. That they, they see him as the guy that you know, might end up having a journeyman career, but wherever he goes, he'll be respected for what he can do. Is there anything that I haven't asked that the Jets fans should know about him? Um, honestly, no. I mean, I think that, you know, he's a, the, the best thing that I would just tell you is that you're getting a real reliable back and, and it's not a, it isn't a sexy pick, but it's a, you know, when you look at some of the, the, players that the Jets have had, they've kind of rolled the dice with late round guys who maybe could do one or two things really well, but weren't a well-rounded guy who could, you know, if the if their starter got hurt, that they could just be the man. And I think P. Ryan is that guy. You may be clamoring for your starter to get back when P. Ryan's through, but you won't be saying that he stinks. You know, I think that, that you'll look at him and go... You know, he's a fine back for what we need him to be, um, and he's occasionally had some good games. But you'll see with P. Ryan, the difference between him and a star is really what the star can do when the line isn't blocking perfectly or when, um, you know, P. Ryan gets tackled, the star might be able to break that tackle or might be able to make that first or second man miss, or P. Ryan might be able to make one man miss or break one tackle. So Piran appears to be a solid RB2 slash backup reserve guy who spells the starter if he gets hurt, and, and a potentially nice option as a third down back with his receiving and blocking skills. But honestly, I, I wasn't overly excited about Piran when they made the pick. I thought he was a very, like you said, a, a safe selection, not the sexy pick. 
someone you know what you're going to get, which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. Earlier, the Jets took more higher upside, lower floor players, but he appears to be the opposite, a kind of higher floor but lower ceiling player. And given the situation with Bell, maybe this wasn't just a safe pick, but also the right pick. Yeah, and I think that that's, sometimes that just has to be the case. Is that you, you, The other thing about that, too, is you have to think about your depth chart. And do you really want, you know, if you're trying to build a team in other ways and you have more players that you love their upside, but you, they're a little bit more, they're a little lesser known, so you may want to have more players at certain on certain depth charts than others, whereas with Piran, you can kind of consolidate your depth chart a little bit better. Yeah, from my perspective, Piran may never be a feature back, but he's a hard worker, and, and the pick is really growing on me. I think most fans will end up really appreciating his blue-collar approach, and in the end, I, I really value, I think that Joe Douglas did a solid job bringing him in here. So, Matt, now that I have you here, and we talked extensively about Piran, there's another player Jets fans most definitely want to hear about. Can you share some thoughts on Denzel Mims? where you had him ranked, what Jets fans should expect from him, and if you think he's a good fit here in New York. I love Denzel Mims coming out. And I had him. You know, I, I don't do rankings all year long, um, but he was a guy that I, you know, I, I'm on Ross Tucker's college draft show on every Monday, and he was a guy I've been talking about since October, November, as a guy that I really liked. And he never is, you know, as other guys kind of moved up or down, I figured as I had watched more and more receivers that I would see maybe um, more receivers overtake Mims in terms of his grade. But it just turns out that Mims' grade was high enough that he was my second-ranked wide receiver pretty much all year. Um, And this is a rich class, and while it's still close between him and guys like, you know, it's him and Jerry Judy were neck and neck. They're different players. So, you know, their grade, their overall grade is kind of more on a broader level. But, you know, when you look at what Mims brings to the table. He's obviously a deep threat. He's someone that wins not only just on double moves, but he can just straight up beat a guy downfield if that defender isn't playing at his best. He's really developed his skill for releasing from the line of scrimmage against press coverage, not only with footwork, but with hand usage. He can combine his feet and hands very well. He has a number of different moves that he's already uh, mastered, and he's getting skilled at being able to gauge how defenders play him, set them up on plays that are not intended for him, and then be able to figure out what defenders are going to do that next time, and then beat them with something different based on what intel he's gained from that situation. Um, He has some drops, and you'll see him make some focus drops, um, and that's going to be a part of his career. So, you know, get used to the fact that he's going to drop the ball some in the same way that Chad Ochocinco or Torrell Owens or Brandon Marshall dropped the ball throughout their careers. But also get used to the idea that he's going to make some of the more acrobatic and difficult catches that you will see in the game. Um, He and C.D. Lamb, I thought... I would have taken some of their best tape in terms of going up to win the ball with their catch radius against tight coverage or with um, you know balls thrown well away from them, uh, low, high, or balls away you know from their frame. And I would have taken some of their best plays and I would put up against some of the best receivers that I've watched over the past 15, 20 years. And you would you some of their some of their best plays would match up with some of the other 
best plays that you would see from, you know, excellent receivers. So there's an exciting element to him in terms of being able to go up and win the ball like that, both in the middle of the field and on the perimeter. Um, So I think you have a lot of promise with him. And it's just a matter of, you know, he's still young, and young guys can be, you know, listen, you know, they, psychological studies pretty much tell you that you don't really mature and grow up into an adult until you're mid to late 20s anyhow. Um, and this is a guy that's about to come into, you know, a big city who's going to be, you know, the star prospect. And you want to see how he handles it. And you want to see how he's going to handle it in a, in a receiver room with a bunch of guys who you might have questions about how they handled it um, just based on how they've performed. And, and so is he going to... Is he going to be sucked in by the gravity of some of those players? Or are those players on their way up and maturing? And is he going to be buoyed by um, how they're approaching them? Because I can't say that these guys are all like slackers and underachievers. That's not my point. I'm just saying that we just don't know where their mindset is. And we saw where it was at one point and that the results weren't there. So now we need to see whether or not if they're, if they're a supportive group that's about the game and they're they're really working hard and wanting it. Then you're going to see a guy like Mims, I think, also be able to you know be able to work with that. And it doesn't mean that he might not just do it on his own. I mean, there are players like think about Frank Gore coming into the 49ers, and at that time the guys just wanted to party at the end of games. And there were stories about Frank Gore basically saying, you know, as a rookie, basically yelling and screaming at his teammates and literally crying in the locker room. Telling, you know, urging his play, his teammates not to not to be laughing and joking around and talking about what they were looking forward to doing after a loss, as opposed to trying to get better after a loss. And I think that you know, and at the same time, you can look at teams that are really good and they take guys under their wing and work with them and, and provide that kind of support. And I think the Jets have potential with that with Sean Jefferson, probably with Jamison Crowder. Um, I would think Perriman has seen both sides of it. And he's probably really gotten his act together um, to be able to make the play in the way that he has. You know, there's been reports that a guy like Josh Doxson, you know, in Washington really didn't want it. Then there were questions about whether he really wanted to be a great player um, and that he was capable of it. But, you know, a guy like Paul Richardson, in contrast, you know, loved the game and you could see it in the way that he practiced. So, you know, how Mims performs and and his attitude about it is really going to ultimately determine whether he's going to be a great player, which I think he's capable of, or whether he's going to be just another talent, super talented athlete who can catch the ball but may not be a great receiver. And I, and I think he will cross that threshold into being the primary guy for the Jets, but that's the risk involved with it. Yeah, hopefully Mims can put this massive talent together and become that dominant receiver. And I'm hoping the Jets do have that locker room there to help nourish his growth. I was already really high on Mims, but after seeing where you had him ranked, got me even more excited about this pick. And I think the Jets got an absolute steal in the second round for a player I thought would go in round one. And more than anything, I'm really looking forward to seeing him and Sam on the field together. For all you out there listening, make sure you check out Matt's rookie scouting portfolio at mattwoldmanrsp.com. It's my personal go-to just to gain more insight into players coming into the league. And again, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure, Joe. Thanks, man. All right, Jets fans. We broke down Pirine, talked a little bit about Bell, and got some insight into Denzel Mims. Hope you all enjoyed the show.